making a no-budget film, it's like going to war. But you're not General MacArthur storming the beaches with the force of a hundred thousand soldiers. Instead, you're you're more like a squad of Viet Cong guerrillas behind enemy lines, trying to complete an impossible mission using guile and your wits. The odds stacked against you. It's risky, difficult, and dangerous. I can swear to it. I've been there. Off, Matt, when we left off last week, I had ended, I believe, on Sin City. And talking about Sin City, Robert Rodriguez's uh, Sin City is appropriate as he just has a new film out, um, uh, Alita Battle Angel, which yep. I, I'm i actually hoping to see this weekend. I'd like to sneak out to the cinema and go check that out. It looks like it should be a good spectacle. It's getting good reviews. You can't mention a Robert Rodriguez film without mentioning his sort of partner in crime, his kindred spirit. And so, number five, right smack in the middle of my top ten list, is Quentin Tarantino's *Inglorious Bastards*. This happens to be my favorite Tarantino film. Actually, it's it's when when you look at his, the progression of his filmmaking career, and you look at the transition between Jackie Brown and *Kill Bill*, that was the moment when he went from making these smaller, more character-driven uh, indie films to more of these large sweeping landscape films, um, very influenced by Western, influenced by uh, Japanese films. And with *Inglorious Bastards, I feel like he hit a good tone, a good mixture of humor, obviously action, is always present, you know, great dialogue, but also the characters are, are very interesting and particularly Christoph Waltz. Christoph Waltz, that's right. Yeah. We talked about last week, one of the things that makes a rainy day film so great is a little bit of escapism. And creating a world in which Hitler gets killed in a th- in a cinema that is a, a flame, that's that's about as escapism as it gets. Also that the, the lead protagonist, Shoshana, is the one who's responsible. Even though you might see Brad Pitt on the cover... Um, the, the real hero of the film is this survivor who witnessed the death of her entire family and waited to the right opportune moment to trap the enemy on her grounds and use what she knows, which is, you know, cinema and cinema reels and film and how combustible they could have been back in those times to lure them into her trap and then get rid of them all in one, in one fell swoop, even at the risk of her own life. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty intense scene. I think everything from the uh, film within a film to the acting to the um, each setup, each move, I, I think the film really sucks you into this world and makes you believe that this is something that could have happened. Yeah, Inglorious Bastards is a violent and fun movie, uh, but uh, disturbing. Uh, lots of, yeah, like any World War II movie, it's got its fair share of, um, you know, disturbing kind of historical fact as well as uh you know the 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 joy of getting to see the bad guys you know get what they deserve i've got for my top what's my number five i've got a oh it's an it's an animated film another animated film this one's from 1983 it's kind of kind of like a musical kind it's a very musically themed okay it's uh it's called rock and rule nice nice like a ruler of the world it's uh 
it's a uh, post-apocalyptic uh, animated film in which um, a, uh, a, I guess, a humanless future uh, in which um, e- evolved animals have taken over the world, and uh, so now it's well into that time period. And um, a wizard, sort of, he's sort of like a wizard. He's he's kind of like a David Bowie of that time period named Mock. Who, who I'm convinced was an actual real wizard in our lifetime. Oh yeah, David. Something definitely something going on with David Bowie, but yeah, it's kind. He's kind of Mock is kind of like an e, if David Bowie and Iggy Pop were the same person and they were and it, and was and was evil and could do magic, uh, and he's so famous and so powerful that he's uh, practically part of the part of the government. And um, Mock has uh, set out on a talent search for a, a, the, the, um, an amazing female vocalist. That's what he's so he's going you know, around the world, going to different nightclubs when um, he discovers someone that's so talented that uh, he wants her for his his plan, which turns out to be uh, that he's actually putting together this strange sort of spell machine thing and with the right vocal, uh, with the the right kind of singing, he can open up a portal and summon a huge monster into our world and use it for his bidding. So it's, I mean, it sounds ridiculous. It is ridiculous, but it's super fun. And here's where I'm going to get you because it is got, I mean, it's got the coolest cast. We're talking Lou Reed, Jeremy Irons, Iggy Pop, Debbie Harry, the singer of Cheap Trick. I mean, it's uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. I mean, it's got like so many talented This is uh, an animated film or an animated film? Animated. It's an American animated film. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. okay. Yeah. But man, it's cool. The music is amazing. Uh, The animation quality is is really great. uh, I I don't know who did it. I mean, it's it's really unfamiliar. I don't think... I I could be wrong, but I... I, You know, like when you watch like a lot of stuff from the 80s, you can recognize like, oh, that's a Ralph Bashke animation. Sure, right. I I recognize that style. Uh, This one's kind of unique, but high quality, good animated film, and a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, here in uh, Lou Reed sang a lot of wrote a lot of original and sang a lot of original songs for that film and nice. it's uh it's really cool yeah rock and rule 1983 man check it out all right i went a different really direction great. for for number four i went um i went with with my favorite christopher nolan film the prestige it is literally a film that centers around the concept of magic and performance i think what christopher nolan is trying to say to the audience through this tale of two warring magicians is that um, the the real trick that an artist is able to pull is getting you to buy into the illusion, whether it be through music, whether it be through art or cinema, to look right when you're really doing the trick with your left hand. That's the magic. And, you know, brilliant performances from both Hugh Jackman and, of course, Christian Bell. I thought the twist played nicely. It wasn't forced. Um, you know, Christopher Nolan has has sort of garnered a reputation for these making you go back and rewatch and rewitness it. And and the pacing on this film, I think one of a fair criticism of some Chris Nolan films is he tends to spell everything out for you. And I think with this film, he resisted that urge and he really let it play out on screen. And maybe that's a testament to the performances. Um, you also have Michael Caine sort of narrating and watching over. And speaking of Bowie, my one of my, one of my favorite Bowie performances as an actor is as Tesla in the film. Oh, I haven't seen The Prestige. Well, you never. Uh, wow, you definitely should. It's great. It's great. Yeah, Bowie pays Tesla. And Nikolai Tesla. Yeah, Nikolai Tesla. 
and um, Hugh Jackman and and um, Christian Bell play magicians that kind of came up around the same time, and and they sort of worked together, and then a a magic uh, an illusion gone wrong causes Hugh Jackman's wife to get killed, and from then on out, it's just a matter of these two magicians trying to n not only out succeed one another but also potentially kill the other person and so uh it gets pretty wild man it's a good film it's it's, it's you know again world setting and it really draws you in and it presents magic in a way that maybe it presents it as a craft and and maybe in a way that you you don't too often see in movies uh i definitely recommend checking it out it's great you know david bowie also played um andy warhol in the, right. the film about jean-michel basquiat and um it got me thinking. Are there those are two pretty big uh, historical characters, Nikolai Tesla, Andy Warhol? Has David Bowie played any other, you know, major historical figures in films that you can think of? Well, I mean, I mean, he played Ziggy Stardust, so I think that would that would certainly count. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think that's a good point. I think I think David Bowie's ability to take, you know called the chameleon but also in real life he, he does have a way of sort of s seamlessly sinking into characters that he portrays be it the characters that he portrayed on stage or whether it's you know as he made his foray into movie making um tilda swinton has a sort of a similar uh, ability and and i actually think that that's why it works so well to have him play some of these historical characters because you just buy into it. Yeah, he's he's he he always is himself. I mean, it's always David Bowie when you when you see him acting. But uh, uh, he, yeah, it, it's still you still believe that it's the other person. Is he actually doing like a Russian accent in the Prestige when he's Nikolai Tesla? Yeah, and I mean it's not overly done. You know, obviously they're all speaking yeah. English, but um, it's good. You should watch it. It's 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 an interesting it's an interesting film, and I think it's one of those films that when you get to the end, even if you even if you guess the twist. Yeah, it's um, again, it's less about the reveal and more about the, the process and the craft. And I think all right. people who are into art would really appreciate that. OK, yeah. All right. Sounds cool. Uh, I guess I'll move on to my next film. It's a uh, an animated short called Cat Soup, a um, coming out of Japan, 2001. And it's uh Stars a couple of cats who are, are uh, they cool when, cats? Um, huh? Are they cool cats? They're yeah, they're they're like anthropomorphic, um, you know, little girls that it, are cats. Is and, Paula uh, Abdul they, in it? it? It's not. You're thinking of something else. Oh, okay. Uh, and so when uh, when the older sister, um, I guess she drowns, and um, is a bit, she's rescued. I I can't. I think I think no. I think she she dies and um that night some sort of a god or spirit comes to take the older sister's soul to the other side and uh, the younger sister wakes up and realizes what's going on and she's able to um get in sort of like a tug of war with her sister's soul and this uh the spirit and well she they rip it in half and the spirit takes one half and the sis little sister takes the other half and puts it back into the big sister so now she's got this kind of half conscious kind of weird sister okay. and so she's got to find the other half of her sister's soul and it's these two little cats on this like really cool uh adventure through all kinds of 
weird dimensions and worlds. Uh, like they, they go to this circus where they, you know, they witness this, this strange magic trick where a, uh, uh, some sort of wizard chops a woman up into a bunch of pieces and oh, then wow. throws all her pieces around through the air and puts her back together. And then he summons this giant elephant made out of water. Uh, and, or, or it's like a, no, the elephant made out of water is later. That's right. They, they ride that through the <laughs> desert. And, uh, I mean, it's really cool. It's just like, uh, it's just this weird adventure through all these realities and stuff until they can finally put themselves back together. I mean, they, they encounter this man that obviously wants to eat them. And uh, he, he kind of whines and dines them at a strange little, you know, S&M mansion. And uh, it's, it's, it gets pretty dark and uh, pretty light. And it's, it's just, it's really cool. It's a lot of fun. So yeah, if you haven't seen Cat Soup, it's like 30 minutes long. I have no idea where you would catch it today. We used to buy the DVD in like little anime shops and stuff back in the day, but it's probably out there somewhere. And uh, I mean, it's probably on YouTube. I mean, e- hell, eBay, these days. eBay, I'm sure. I don't even think you need to. Yeah. You could just go to YouTube and search for cat soup. I got a feeling. I do. I do see a little bit of a, a, a thread of these sort of existential films in your list. Uh, definitely a lot of dealings with um, souls and, and higher beings Okay, yeah, there's yeah, there's a bit of that going on. I think we, uh, well, I, you don't have to worry about that in the remaining films. They're all pretty, uh, yeah, well, pretty uh, accessible, like real world movies. Um, we don't often get criticism for our podcast, um, but we we did get one criticism from a good friend yeah. of ours, uh, Christopher Nedick from the uh, Regrettable Century podcast. Yeah, Chris, what did what do you have to say? Well, he took umbrage with the fact, uh, and I agree with him. As my apology that. When we were talking about my favorite Satan, that I didn't mention Roman Polanski's The Ninth Gate, which was an a, oh yeah, it was a blatant oversight on my part. is one of my favorite films, and um, the, even though the film doesn't really show a devil per se, it definitely it's definitely rooted in in the story. And um, but it is it while it wasn't on my my favorite Satan list, it is included here as number three on my films to watch on a rainy day. So. Apologizing for leaving it off our previous podcast, but it is here, and um, we we anticipated we were going to do this. That's why we left it off, Chris. Right, right. It needed, we plan really far ahead. I don't know what you guys do over there, right? At Regrettable Century, but we are very organized here. Hundred percent. Definitely don't pick topics at the last minute. And uh, <laughs> if you guys, for anyone listening, if you guys are interested in a, a different type of podcast, but a equally enjoyable podcast, um, the guys over at Regrettable Century are talking about some pretty serious stuff in a way that I think is uh, open for everyone to listen and to learn and to kind of think a little bit deeper about the world and uh, the way politics run this world around us. Um, So check that out. That's right. They've got a crew of very knowledgeable people and you will learn a lot of stuff. But back to back to the number three, you know, Roman Polanski is one of those filmmakers that is difficult to support as a person. Um, Mm -hmm. but from an artist standpoint, he he is one of the best for better, for worse. And you're you're just what you're talking about there. There have been some victims. Yeah. Listen, he's, he's not a good person and that he's, he, he's, you know, fled the United States to live in Europe, um, because he was, he was, was he actually, uh, found guilty on charges of, of, uh, sexual assault? I believe so. I don't. I don't know if he was ever there for a trial, but yeah, I think if he comes back, he can be in some trouble. Right. Um, and that's and that is something you know that if if uh, we you know it's part of just being a fan of films. I mean, 
films are are full a lot of people work on films and somehow really terrible people tend to rise at the top I, I don't know what that is if there's a certain kind of personality that excels in that industry or if that's just the world in general but like that is something you deal with as a film fan is just you know so many of these really great works of art you just kind of have to also you know watch them acknowledging that some some awful people were involved yeah and 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 i think as enjoyers of art of appreciators of any sort of creative process there is there's two schools of thought and and i don't think that we're in any position to tell you which way to think but there is the thought that if someone ends up being a shitty person that you um that you never that you never watch their art again um, I think as it relates to film, one of, one of the more relevant uh, examples is Harvey Weinstein, right? Or yeah. you could look now at uh, Brian Singer or Kevin Spacey, any number of these very talented people who ha- – Bill Cosby is another great example. I just read an article that says he doesn't regret anything, that he thinks that this is a um, – that he's a political prisoner. And so – Yeah, see, that's that is a good example because – something like Roman Polanski where it's like a guy that's behind the scenes, you can still watch his films and you know, it's like that in a sense that art is innocent. You know, you, you can watch it and you can say, uh, you know, as I don't, I don't mean everything's innocent. I don't mean even it's creation. I just mean like you're, you can enjoy a film without ever knowing the kind of people that are involved. But these days, I mean, I can't even look at Bill Cosby without just seeing a monster. That's right. So, That's you right. know, it's not like you could say, oh, yeah, but those old Cosby shows are pretty funny. I mean, they're pretty good because it's like that his face, it's him the whole time. I mean, how could, you know, it's just, it, you can't get past that. Right. It's not just, it's not just a, uh, something he created that, that you can ignore his hand in. I mean, he is the creation. It's his performance. It's his physical performance. And so, um, I think from my position, and, and this goes beyond this goes beyond when someone that you respect artistically proves to be a bad person. I think in general, you should separate the artist from the art. Um, so with all that sort of preamble being said, The Ninth Gate is one of my favorite films. Um, I again, there is a it takes a it takes something that I enjoy. Like the idea of literature, I actually went to university to go to 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 study and teach literature, and so books and um, especially ancient old books have always been really like magical to me. So so setting the the premise of the film to revolve around these ancient esoteric books that may or may not have been co-written by the devil himself, and lead this protagonist played by Johnny Depp down this path, that this left hand path. I thought was so interesting. It's very, it's a very European style film in terms of its pacing. Certainly it's set in Europe. Um, I think the actors who play their parts are fantastic. You have a larger name in Johnny Depp, but at the time that that movie came up, he wasn't, he wasn't Captain Jack Sparrow yet. So he was still doing these more intimate, you know, thought provoking films. And um, the score is fantastic. The, the sort of, world that it creates with this sort of puzzle piece of how you know getting to the next step on this journey to find out all the are these books authentically related to the devil yeah or, i kind of remember it was like he was searching for rare mm. books and uh yeah is this pretty cool you know, but th- yeah i can't i thought it's great i mean it's it's got a really good cast a really understated cast 
again, the tone, the eeriness. It's one of the things that I love about horror films that is somewhat missing from time to time, which is subtlety, you know, is uh, is playing it slow and letting the tension just sort of build and build. And there's a fantastic scene towards the end when this mysterious benefactor that has been following him, this young woman who does not appear at, at the surface to be anything other than maybe a student or a traveler, starts to show these um, metaphysical powers and the ability to glide and, and heightened strength and it sort of accumulates to this moment where they have this passionate sexual experience in front of this castle of flame and it, you know it, it it builds this moment to where it doesn't look like you're watching two characters having sex it looks like you're watching a ritual it looks like you're watching something demonic and it's so intense and as the camera slowly pans into her eyes and they start to flicker you know glowing i think that to me that's that's a brilliant way to show horror is you let it simmer and build to this one crescendo and it's not what people traditionally think of horror but to me it's a very disturbing moment hmm yeah i i remember that ending with uh yeah then they're kind of up in front of this gateway to hell or something and they're having this weird love scene yeah uh, is it a gateway to hell is it a flaming castle we don't really know right yeah a lot of fire uh passion yeah pretty intense stuff uh let's see uh what do i have next i well the next film i had i was i was actually going to do two films by this guy but uh i think i might kind of just combine them um shane meadows have you heard of him i have not no english filmmaker he's uh he's pretty great he, he teams up with the actor patty considine a lot and they tell these stories that are kind of like these really accurate depictions of uh boyhood um uh, not not necessarily but childhood but like kind of that adolescence you know uh, right coming of age time. not quite old enough to drive but uh you know, you can, you can get around town on the bus, explore on your skateboard, walk around with your friends. Uh, you, you know, th- those years, you, you get in some weird places, man, like some weird adventures, you know, because you're, you're, you move through the world a lot slower in those years. You know, as, as you get 16, 17, you start getting cars and it's everything becomes more point A to point B. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. But when you're going everywhere on bikes or skateboards or walking around with your friends, you're interacting with all kinds of people. You're, you know, you're seeing the world in a much slower place. And a lot, a lot of people still, as adults, still move through the world this way. And I'm jealous of them because I can't. In Austin, it's, it's not really as much of an option as I'd like it to be. But uh, he kind of tells his stories of those years. You know, like the, the first one of his I saw was a film called This Is England. And uh, it was cool. It kind of, it was like this um, really fun, uh, it's, well, it starts out like a really fun story about this, 12 year old boy that doesn't have any friends and he meets this group of skinheads but not like racist skinheads like more like ska music uh working class you know right i mean mixed race group like you know uh just fun doing the thing you know small town england uh boys and girls that just kind of hang out and you know keep their hair short and just have fun together so they kind of bring him into the gang and he's having a great time with them and everything is really fun 
until um, this guy that used to run with all of them, a much older uh, guy, a man, a grown man now that has been in prison for like six years, he gets out and comes back to the old neighborhood and kind of, you know, kind of takes over with uh, the, this sort of gang that they're all part of. And instead of it being about hanging out with your friends, listening to fun music and wearing tight blue jeans and Ben Sherman shirts, now it's about nationalism and, you know, they're taking over England and, you know, we've got to get them out. And, and, and he kind of, he makes this rift where, you know, half of the boys and girls are going to continue on the way they were and just be really nice people and have a great time. And then the other half now are going to go terrorize shopkeepers and, you know, stand up for English nationalist uh, ideology. And, and it's like, uh, I mean, I, I think we all have, I, I don't know. It, it, to me, it really struck a nerve. Like that's such a part of growing up where like, you, you've got, you know, these people you have fun with and then you start getting these guys that are like, hey, we need to be more serious now, you know? Yeah. We, we need to stand for something. We need to believe in something. And maybe maybe whatever ideology comes their way is a positive thing, you know? They're like, we need to believe in cleaning up the parks and picking up trash and, you know, exercising and, and doing our homework. But, but it's probably not. It's usually something a little more weird like that. And uh, so this movie kind of deals with that. You know, what do you do? When, you know, your best friends start becoming like uptight and start, you know, getting racist possibly. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the fun you were having is now, you know, all of a sudden it's like this, even though you're like 12 or 15, it's, it's, it's changed from this uh, having fun to your friends to like, it's time to grow up, you know? Right. And so that, that was, that was This is England. But I also want to talk about another film of Shane Meadows called The Room for Romeo Brass because it also kind of has some of those themes. It's like, He's he's got this way of like exploring those uh, uh, like I was talking with a friend about this the other day and I hope if he's listening to this I hope he doesn't think I was practicing for the show because I hate that <laughs> you know I've, I've had friends that are like stand up comedians and you know and you'll be having conversations with them and they're being really funny and stuff and then then you go see you, their act at the comedy you, club you could, and it's you can like, tell that they're workshopping with you they they were workshopping man <laughs> so <laughs> so Adam if you're listening I was not workshopping with you man I just actually like <laughs> the, the movies came up in conversation and but uh you know he uh, what this one and actually this movie came out of a conversation that Shane Meadows and uh Patty Constantine had where they're they're talking about those like those year that you know the same years of, of boyhood that I'm talking about where uh how it's it's actually one of the most lawless time periods in a boy's life mm. you know when you're like 13 or 14 and you're just hanging out it's like there's no parents around, you know, there's no, you know, and so many things are going to happen almost in like the name of fun or like, you know, it's like a prank or something, you know, but like really messed up things go on. Like people get hurt, yeah. they, you know, boys get scars from other boys, like right. that they keep their whole lives, you know, like we had that freedom to explore and get ourselves in that quote unquote trouble or, or get those scars that then informed the kind of men that we would, or, or women that we would grow on to be. Well, sure. Yeah. You had that freedom, but you also don't have the protections of an adult. Like I remember there was this bully in our neighborhood that used to put his cigarettes out on other kids. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, nowadays you press charges on a guy like that. You're right, going to get in trouble, right. buddy. You know, you can't <laughs> see what you did. You're going to pay for you know, my, my doctor's bills, you know, it's, but when you're a kid, man, it's like, you're it's the old west you know and so uh in a room for romeo brass though it's they're more dealing with like do you remember i mean i don't know if you had this but 
you know, in my neighborhood, in, in the area I grew up, we definitely had this where there, there would be these guys that hung around that were like way too old for it to be appropriate with them hanging oh. out with a group of kids like our age. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and they, I mean, they were just, you know, maybe they were uh, living with their parents in the neighborhood. Maybe they had a little mental problem, or maybe they've been, you know, they, they didn't finish high school, and they'd, well, you know, e- e- done some jail time. Even uh, to the point but, when we got older, we, we had some, we knew some people who then became those guys with people a little too young for for them to be hanging absolutely. out with. Absolutely. And when, when you are that kid, though, that's like got this cool older friend that, you know, man, he carries a knife, and he smokes, and he's like... You know, he knows about all uh, liquor and he's done drugs and, you know, and you're and it's just like it's really cool. You know, you're like, wow, I'm, this is so exotic and awesome. And I, I must be really mature because I've got this friend now that's right. You know, but, but when you look back, it's like or, or imagine like a parent, you know, seeing their kid hanging out with these guys. And you're like, who the heck is that guy? You know, you, and you look back on it and you're just like, man, that guy was I was a weirdo. Like I was crazy. Right. Well, and so, what, was uh, that, what was that guy doing hanging out with people so much younger and in theory, yeah, immature than him? him. And that's, that's what a room for a room for Romeo brass is about that. It's like these kids meet this, this older guy that seems really cool. He's all about martial arts and he's really interesting. And he talks about all kinds of crazy philosophical stuff. But then like, as they start spending more and more time with them, uh, they start realizing like, there's a lot wrong with this guy. And uh, then they don't really know what to do to get rid of him. Right, right. Uh, so we're in the top two now. Yes, we are. If my last selection was rooted in subtlety and um, and simplicity, maybe in its in its approach to horror, uh, my next film goes the exact opposite rate, way of that. And that is this is a film coming out of uh, New Zealand, I believe, and that is Jason Lee Howden's Deathgasm. Yeah, that's a good. It's one. great. It's so great. I watched this in um, for the first time with my girlfriend in Australia, and it was a film that I'd heard about already, and that I had it had sort of piqued my interest. It is a spiritual grandchild of the Evil Dead series. You know, in the same way that um, Detroit Rock City, uh, Dazed and Confused, American Graffiti, right? In the way that these sort of seminal films came along. And showcase these this coming of age, this end of innocence for young people and music. You know your your Cameron Crows and those kind of films that come out. Deathgasm takes all that and it turns it right on its head. It's about a bunch of sort of loser metalhead kids who uh, come across an evil uh, lyric sheet. Uh, sorry, mu- uh, uh, an evil musical sheet, and they play it. And when they play it, they basically unleash demons onto their small town. And then they've got to go and sort of kill it and, and put the evil back in its place um it's it's just fantastically done so it does a great job about showcasing the extreme metal scene with the guys wearing corpus paint and their his friend's love of D and um you know there is a little bit of that like slightly older cooler guy that he falls in with um i think they take some they must have taken some elephant uh, elements of from the the real life guys in mayhem and infused a little bit of that storyline in there but did it in a way that was very uh fun uh, fun horror comedy and it's excellent it's an excellent movie and i definitely recommend everyone watching it's a fun ride and if you just want to feel good and have a good time deathgasm is the way to go oh yeah 
It's it's a good one. I I got something to say about Deathgasm, man. That I was really pleased to see. Uh, so I you know I realized a while back I I love metal, man, and I I realized like a few years back at a show that I'm not I'm not really like some other metalheads. Like I'm not, I'm sure I'm like a lot of metalheads, but like people who love metal there's a wide range of us man some of us are just really happy people that just love uplifting metal music and like crazy songs about knights and wizards yeah why not and you know the devil and stuff and then some of us though are like a little different you know like there's it means something a little different man and i was i was at a show at a red seven it's a venue in austin that closed down a while back and we, we were playing a show in fact i had a band back then and we played and, and so what was the band called my band yeah uh, chemicals are go. It was chemicals are go. Yeah. That was the name of the band. Uh, but so anyway, we finished our set we went out back and there's a stage out back and there was this metal band on stage and, um, you know, they kind of looked like what a lot of Texas metal guys look like, you know, real hillbilly looking, you know, uh, real, great um, Southern trend kill. Huh? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how to put it. Not, not, not intentionally hillbilly looking, but you know, just, you know, kind of, kind of chubby guys that don't really do too well with the ladies, you know, and it just metal means a lot to them. And well, I, I mean, I was being a dick as I tend to do. And as when the singer took off his shirt, I started yelling like, you know, stuff about how sexy he was and <laughs> take it off. And <laughs> the dude looked at me, man, and just took out this little knife and just started carving lines into his chest, Holy like, shit! like bleeding, like Fuck. in front of me. And like, I backed down, you know, I was just like, I should leave. I'm no, leave. man, you should have ripped your shirt off. Here's what you should have done. You should have ripped your shirt off. You should have borrowed some lipstick and you should have done the same thing, but more glammy, you with know, lipstick. You put it with lipstick. <laughs> I just had, just had a, a, a chest art contest. Yeah. I don't, I, you know, I don't think I want to encourage this man cutting himself anymore, but, uh, you know, end of the story of the, of the unnecessary story that I'm telling, but a couple days later, I'm back at red seven and I see him sitting at the bar. Uh, so I went up by, you know, and I, I felt bad uh, that I kind of teased him, you know, and he was really having something obviously very serious to him. So I bought him a drink and I said, Hey man, I'm sorry about like, you know, all that dumb stuff I was yelling at your show the other night, you know? And, and he, <laughs> we had this conversation about how metal is real, man. You know, like it was <laughs> like, he wanted me to know, like, this is not a joking matter, brother. Like, this is some real stuff. Like you think it's not, you think it's just music, but no. And I'm, so, you know, so I, that's why I kind of learned like, okay, you know, people, people see it in different ways. And, th and there is a film, uh, was it Lords of Chaos? Is that what they're calling this? The new one coming out about mayhem? Uh, yeah, I think so. Oh, Masters of the Chaos. Uh, Ma that, Masters something, of something. Masters of the Universe. Uh, yeah. With uh, Macaulay Culkin's little brother. No, and, and I think that's, that's going to explore that more like serious side of metal, but Deathgasm doesn't do that. Deathgasm shows, how Matt likes his metal. I mean, yeah. it's got like people putting on headphones and then suddenly seeing themselves wearing armor and like yes. riding dragons. And, you know, it's like, I, I've never seen that portrayed so well in a film of like that feeling that you get where you're like transported to some fantasy dimension, you know, when those guitars come in and the singing starts. I mean, you remember, we used to listen to Sonata Artica. Yeah. And we would talk about how it was like white paladin metal. Not like white skin, but like, you yeah, know, like, right. the, the, like it was white knight paladin metal. Well, you know? it's, it's it, like, uh, I, I'll never forget this. Um, I remember when we, the very first time we listened to Children of Bodom, 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't I don't remember exactly where we were. I, I want to say we we're probably in a car. But I, I distinctly remember you saying these guys just get it. And that's oh, that was all that did. had to be be said because they did. They got it 100 percent. Absolutely, man. What's his name? Uh, Alexei Leo. I, I can't. My Swedish isn't so great, but God, that guy. I mean, what a what an amazing guy. Like, I think he was 18 when he started that band, and he was, I mean, just, oh man, he plays that guitar like better than any you know big city symphony violinist. I mean, he's the the talent in that guy, but he's also you know screaming and singing the whole time, and I mean, he was. God, it's an amazing band. Children of Bodom. I've had so much fun with them over the years. And it's like the opposite of that, of what we're talking about. Children of Bodom. It's like when I listen to that, I'm like standing on some dark mountain and I've got like huge demon wings and I'm just looking down at all the chaos in the village below that I've caused. And then I fly off to go torture some, some other, you know, peaceful city in the night and you know you know we talk a lot about films but you know mu- mu- music does the same thing it has that escapist quality it can take your mind to places that it doesn't even know it can go to you know it can it can open up a part of you that you might not even know is is there all the time because it gets you know we talked earlier at your last film about the, that age and where you're free you're you're truly free not only of responsibility but of safety and um, I think I think a great I think and I think metal in particular has this quality that it can take you there. It could take you back to that time, even if that time is in a little bit more of a stylized world, you know. Totally. Yeah, it just gets right into that imagination core, man, and just activates it. It's awesome. I think I think we're going to have to do another episode where we, we touch back on metal and, and maybe we watch Lords of Chaos and uh, do a little review on it because I'm really excited about that film. I'm really interested. I like Mayhem. I don't like. I've never really liked Mayhem's vocals. Yeah, this is kind of in the early days of Cookie Monstering, and uh, I, I don't know <laughs> that they were so great at it. But the the music's fantastic. And what is Cook- Cookie Monstering? Could you uh, give oh, the yes. listeners well, a little example? Uh, well, I can't anymore because I've destroyed my vocal cords. Um, <laughs> but but Cookie Monstering is something that became increasingly popular in the late 90s and certainly early into the early 2000s uh i mean still now actually really if we're being honest about where everyone sort of has a guttural scream rather than a traditional vocal style and it works for a lot of bands and for a lot of bands it's fantastic it became too common every hardcore band every metalcore band every metal band they all do the screamy stuff Every pop band, every boy band. Yeah, they all do it now. So, but you know, as everybody's doing. Listen, it. as trends go, um, it's every jam band, every jug band. That's right. Uh, some bluegrass <laughs> bands. That's some, that's some <laughs> on and on it goes. Some death bluegrass. Try Bla- yeah, black, try something called, new, guys. All right, you know, not everybody has to scream <laughs> and growl. You know, yeah. that's that's what really turned me off to George Strait's last album was the screaming. I thought it was kind of kind of came out of nowhere. It seemed pretty forced. Uh, so getting back to, um, <laughs> the, the film list, uh, but, you know, we, we talked a lot about, you know, that those preteen years hanging out with your friends, getting into adventures. Imagine though, that if you were that age and you didn't have any friends, man, there was no children around. You're just this kid by himself in a neighborhood of nothing but old folks. Cause you live with your grandma. Oh, you going to go with Harold and Maude? No. Okay. Uh, 
I don't even know where you how you got that. I don't know. It's the, that's a good movie. I hate <laughs> but, that movie. It's so boring. No, I'm not. No, this is a Japanese film from 1999 from the late 90s, and it's called Kikujiro, and it stars Takeshi Kitano. Okay. And a young, lonely young boy who comes home from school and he's got no friends and he, you know, his, he lives at his grandma's house. Um, he has to, uh, he, I think he gets invited to go visit his mom or he wants to go, he wants to go visit his mom. Okay. And the next door, you know, and the grandma's out of town and the next door neighbor gets this idea that, you know, it's a few towns away. He's going to have to, uh, you know, ride the bus. And, um, you know, she, so she gets this idea of like sending her deadbeat husband with him as a chaperone. Who is and his step grandpa? No, no, no. This is the next door neighbor. Oh, oh, it's oh, just gotcha, like, gotcha. yeah, just friends of the family. But she's, you know, she's like, my husband doesn't do anything. He doesn't work. Uh, you know, and it turns out this guy's like, kind of an edgy guy he's like ex-yakuza like they don't explain a lot of his backstory but there's of... certain tattoos you can see on uh, older japanese men when they take their shirts off right. that kind of explain that and so he's turns out it's it's takeshi katano who's known for his amazing yakuza films in japan and he's playing one of his typical characters but like in his twilight years you know just living with this this nice lady that has agreed to marry him in a nice quiet neighborhood away from that life and he doesn't do much with his day. He's kind of just uh, just kind of a deadbeat. So she's like, you know, get this boy to his mom's house. You know, he needs he needs uh, some adult co- accompaniment. Right, right. So uh, now this is where it gets fun. You know, Takeshi Kitano, I, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but um, American audiences might know him from uh, a few years back on a, on a cable channel called Spike TV. They had this show called uh, Extreme Elimination Challenge, okay. something like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, I mean, I've seen those shows before. I don't know if I've seen that one specifically. It's sort of like the American Ninja Warrior, right. uh, you know, those those gauntlet shows where they have to do all these uh, crazy tasks. And, and But this one was a lot, a lot funnier. You know, it was like weird costumes, mazes, uh, funny things that these people had to do. And so some, some American studio bought the the right the usage to it and they dubbed it over with silly voices you know oh yeah and, uh, yeah yeah American i do commentary. know i know exactly what you're talking about okay great yeah well that show extreme elimination challenge uh if that is the correct name i, I didn't really pay much attention to it back then but what the the real show from japan that they were using was called takeshi castle okay because takeshi katano though he's like a robert de niro level filmmaker you know uh I mean, he's kind of like Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese and like all these guys together. You know, he's he he makes these amazing films, but he's also a comedian. Oh. And so uh, on television, he's more popular for his comedy stuff or in the cinema. He's more popular for his like heavy um, gangster movies. Right. Right. And uh, so he and he was the, uh, the the kind of the main guy uh, in in. Extreme Elimination Challenge to Keshi's Castle. And, and so the, the idea was that the uh, contestants would perform a bunch of crazy uh, tasks and wild costumes, and, and then they would go up against him in the end. Wow. And so what Kikujiro does, Kikujiro, what they do in this film is like, essentially something goes wrong. They lose all the money that they have for travel at the racetracks. And now he's got to kind of hitchhike and get this boy to his mom's house, like his mom, or, or he'll be in deep trouble with his wife. And he starts sensing, you know, how, just how lonely this kid is. And so he, he feels bad and 
he starts um, basically he's you know being ex yakuza. He's kind of a tough guy, and he starts along their way, kind of bullying strangers into playing with this kid. And okay. it's like they yeah, and so it's all these weird scenes along the way where they're setting up little mini games, like little Takeshi's Castle style mini games for the kids' enjoyment because this mean man is making people. Like they, like they meet these two bikers that are just gentle souls, you know, and um, he convinces them to uh, like get into this pond and sort of paint themselves as octopuses. And so the boys can, the boy can throw rings around these fake tentacles they've made. And it's, <laughs> it's so weird. It's, a, right, it's such right. a bizarre film, but it's this really fun adventure of this older man and this kid uh, just playing all these weird games along the way. You know, uh, uh, and it's it's just a cool movie. It's like you know, yeah. When when you when you're just you got no friends and uh, you meet the you know, and then here's this 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 old man that's gonna you know just try to give you whatever form of weird childhood he can think of, and he's just gonna bully people into making sure that you have a good summer. Okay. Yeah, he's he's really cool. If you if you're not familiar with the the films of Takeshi Kitano, man, get on it because that guy. He's awesome. That's, I mean, everything he does is is that, worth watching. That sounds awesome. Okay, I will watch that. Well, as we're rounding to my number one, I have to read one of my favorite monologues in a film. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannehauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. Time to die. My number one film, which is also my absolute favorite film of all time, is Blade Runner. And on a rainy day, I can't think of a better film to watch than one that set the standard for post-apocalyptic universes. Um, from the Everything about that film works on every level, from the antagonist of Roy Batty, being this sort of escaped criminal replicant, but in the end you realize maybe has more humanity than than the people trying to capture him. Um, certainly Harrison Ford delivers a fantastic performance, more subtle and even at points somewhat monotone than some of his previous works. Certainly if you watch him coming off of Indiana Jones or Han Solo, the sort of wisecracking, smirking, hero all that's kind of deconstructed and stripped away and what you have left is this this guy on a mission who almost exudes limited emotion um it it is in every way a a, a postmodern noir with all set in this amazing dreary rain-filled world that also simultaneously is lit seemingly only by neon signs of commerce um, I can't think of anything more post-apocalyptic than that setting. It, it's a brilliant film. It's really Scott's best film. It's a film that um, I think is still really underappreciated uh, in terms of its importance in the world of sci-fi. And um, I thought its sequel was a very worthy successor. Uh, I, I knew right away when you started talking about the things you'd seen uh, where you were going. And that, man, Rutger Hauer sitting on that roof thinking about his brief, bright, burning life. Uh, I mean, that was cool. That was a good one. Right. So many other films will be content to just have the bad guy you know, espouse 
evil for evil's sake or deliver a couple of one lines or zingers but but very rarely do you see a filmmaker take you all the way through this film and and at the end shoot you with this like this sense of real humanity i mean roy batty doesn't have to save harrison ford you know um and he does though and and again he shows himself to be far more human than the people that have been chasing him. You go through this entire movie feeling like these replicants are bad guys, not even knowing necessarily why. And then you get to the end and you realize they just wanted a life. They just wanted freedom. And um, never, not to mention the entire undercurrent as to whether or not he's an actual replicant or not. I mean, I think that's, it, that that in itself is is one of those like eternal mysteries that people keep going back to over and over again and the sequel kind of didn't even bother to answer yeah i still haven't seen that sequel <laughs> uh it, get around to doing that it's it's great i actually yeah. I, I actually think it's really really good as far as sequels of, of movies like that it, it's always difficult to follow up a film like that it's hard to follow up a film that that has such an important role in cinema history and have it have it add to the universe in some way, you know, right. Um, what 2049 was able to do was pick up on a lot. If, if the original blade runner is rooted in nihilism with, with a slight undercurrent of existentialism, I think 2049 picks more up on the existentialism. That was just a, a slight undercurrent in the original film and, and more runs with that. I think it does a great job of, of, um, putting, Brian Gosling's character in the position of of um, almost like a hybrid between Harrison Ford and Rutger Howard's characters in that we start off with him being knowing he's a replicant and then wondering if he's something more right whereas in the original film Harrison Ford thinks that he is real and we as the audience are left with the question of but is he or is he not and I think certainly depending on what your version of Blade Runner you watch, that question is answered by the filmmaker or it's not. But um, it, they're interesting themes that are that are sort of strung through them. They're very deep themes that are sort of strung through them both. And uh, they're wrapped up in, in just amazing cinematography, amazing um, art direction, costuming, mood setting, the whole thing. Like everything you want to see in a cinematic experience, I think, is is very much represented by the original Blade Runner. It's last but not least, but it's all it's also not uh, you know like my favorite film or anything like that. But it's good, and I thought it, you know should get recommended because it's one that kind of went under the radar a while back. A film called Predestination from 2014, starring Ethan Hawke. Okay. And it's based on a really cool old sci-fi short story uh, back in the late 50s. The author Robert Heinlein asked us to consider a uh, a really nifty time paradox uh, in which a uh, a lead character is trying to um, kind of figure out his own existence and like what what you know how he came to be, and uh, the, it was called "All You Zombies." You might you might have heard this quote before. Uh, you know, uh, he says, "I know where I came from, but where did all you zombies come from?" Interesting. That's the the last line. Uh, really compelling stuff for the late fifties. Uh, but so in predestination, Ethan Hawke is, um, he, let's see, how does it go? He's, it's, uh, 
a uh, e- Ethan Hawke is a bartender that meets a young man that starts telling him this crazy story about how he was born a woman, but um, later on, after uh, getting pregnant and having a child, uh, or, or dur- during the birth, uh, the doctors noticed um, that this woman um, had a bunch of male parts internally. It's it's really okay. bizarre stuff. So they um, essentially what they do is they make a decision for her that she'll just be a man from now on because I think there was some damage during the pregnancy and they and the doctors just kind of decided it'll be simpler if uh, you know they just trans force this person to transition into a man. Okay. So the ba- the baby's given up for adoption, and this unmarried mother now um, is, starts life as a man. And moves on from there. And um, so this person is telling Ethan Hawke this whole story um, because, uh, and at the same time, as as a job, this person is this sort of like time cop kind of agent that... Ethan Hawke's character or the uh, the former woman, now man, bartender? Yes, the, the person in the bar. Not the bartender, but the person in the bar. No, it's, it's telling the story to the bartender. Right, right, right. Yeah, and... Um, and he has been on the hunt, you know, that, that for this uh, bomber that has been responsible for the worst terrorist attacks uh, in, in human history, basically, leading up to this moment. And what he's trying to do is travel through time and try to prevent these terrorist attacks to, have, you know, because this sort of f- uh, future policing service that has determined that the world would be better if it had never happened. And... Um, well, crap! I, I'm at a point now where if I continue to tell you anything about the film, I'll probably ruin it. <laughs> okay, it's you a can, you really, can, yeah. I mean, and I, what do you do? It's a really twisty, crazy sci-fi plot, uh, and yeah, it explores, um, you know, kind of the nature of time and uh, of paradoxical existence. And um, as you're watching this character uncover the story of his own existence, uh, the, the, you know, you kind of get a sense that, um, you know, we, we all kind of take for granted that, you know, some, some more than others, some a lot less than others that we, you know, we just sort of exist and that is what it is. But what if, what if there was someone out there that really figured out where he came from? What would the rest of us look like to him? Interesting. And Interesting. What would his actions portray? You know, I mean, what, what kind of, yeah. What, what kind of belief system would this person come up with? It's, it's kind of hard to explain it, uh, without giving away, this, the secrets of the film, but uh, I really suggest it. It's it's a good movie, Predestination. Ethan Hawke does a great job, and um, the act actress that plays the uh, the the sort of time agent is uh, Sarah Snook, and uh, she was man, she was awesome as as you know a young girl, and then later on as a uh, as a man uh, playing both sides. It was it was really cool, really great performance. Uh, but yeah, that's all I have to close on there. It's just a weird kind of existential, paradoxical, uh, hardcore sci-fi uh, adventure mystery. Um, you know, I think we've both put out some lists of varied interests, and, and I'm excited to watch some of your films, and hopefully people listening at home uh, can share with us some of their lists to watch on a rainy day and, and tell us what some of your favorite films when you're kind of trapped inside are. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, please comment. Um, We want 
to interact with you guys. We want to know what it is that you like about listening to the show, and we want to hear what you might want to hear more of or, or what you absolutely hate that we say. Yes, and, and we want to thank you for listening in these early stages of the show right now. We are a very young show. If you've got an idea for something we can add to the show, uh, some new feature that you'd like to hear that you think we'd be good at, um, that would be really cool to hear that kind of input. Yeah. So uh, I think with that scene said, the sun is starting to crack out beyond the clouds. I think it's time to go outside. We'll talk to you next week. You're listening to the Grindhouse Podcast on the Cooking Monstering Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and wherever all fine podcasts can be found.